a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Greetings, one and all. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are listening to the podcast. Welcome along to episode 124 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring a true great of Australian cricket. In fact, let's say a true great of world cricket, shall we? Greg Chapman. And that could be down to the boundary for his 100. Racing across the outfield. Yes, it's all the way. And that's Greg Chapman's second century of the series. The only player in either team to score 200. Greg has spent a lifetime in the game he loves. Batsman, captain, coach, selector, commentator, author and hat maker, which is discussed in this episode. Let's be honest, which cricketer worth his or her salt hasn't owned the old Greg Chapel White floppy at some stage? It's almost a cricketer's rite of passage. In many ways, like that hat, this chat is a bit of a journey through my youth, so I'm apologising for that right off the top that some of my first cricket memories involve Greg and his exploits. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Now before we get rolling, we would love it if you could subscribe to the Howie Games. I know... When you hear the word subscribe, you think it costs money, but it doesn't. In the world of podcasts, it's absolutely free, no strings attached. It is a win for us as it allows us to grow the podcast and a win for you as you will not miss any of our new content that we are currently working on that may not drop on Thursdays. Please consider it as a favour from all you cool cats to me. Thank you. Alrighty, let's talk cricket, life and getting chased with a tomahawk by a bloke called Trevor with Gregory Stephen Chappell. A-O-M-B-E. Enjoy. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that has done it all on uh, cricket fields around the world. 87 tests, averaging over 53. An incredible player and a man that's had a, well, 60-plus year involvement in the game. Greg Chappell, welcome to the show. Greg, it is wonderful to see you. How are you going? Good, Howie. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm pumped to have you on. It's funny. In my job now, I get to meet and talk to a lot of people and you don't think too much about it. And I'll be completely frank with you here. As a young man growing up, my first memories of watching cricket were watching you. So you had quite an impact on me as a young man, which makes me a little bit edgy coming to a podcast situation with you, which I'm not used to. So take it easy on me. Okay, no worries. I'll um, be as kind as I can. Well, there's a, there's a real stature to you and your brother. Your, your brother, when I started on the Big Bash, Ian, he'd come into the commentary box and he'd talk to uh, Tugger and Junior and Ricky and Gilly and I'd sit in the back and I was a little bit in awe of him. And I was the same with you, but I was lucky enough to meet you, you won't recall, when Fox first got the cricket. Yep. And Ben Amafio spoke, who was in charge at the time. Belinda Clark spoke to us and you spoke to us and I, I came and said day and uh, said, Mr Chappell, nice to meet you. And straight away you said, don't call me uh, Mr Chappell, call me Greg Howie and you used my nickname, which relaxed me. But there's something about the chapels where people just step back and it's like, ooh, you're pretty serious operators, Greg. Yeah, look, I think that was probably part of the early early training. Um, you know, our father was 
obviously heavily involved in our early early years and particularly around our sport. He he loved his sport and he always wanted us to play, uh, you know, whenever we played, he wanted us to play the game seriously. So every game of cricket from the backyard down on the beach, wherever it was, was, was always pretty serious. And I think I learned at an early age that you protect yourself, but you don't give too much away. You know, don't let people know you're nervous, um, you know. So I think I um, I developed a pretty um, stern exterior just to sort of keep people away, not not from the, from the personal sense but from a sporting sense. Just yep. don't let the opposition know what, whether you're hurting, whether you're happy, sad or, or whatever. So it was always pretty much the, the game face and, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably part of the personality as well. But, you know, I always used to be amused by, you know, opponents who would let you know exactly how they were thinking at any given time. Right. And I, I didn't quite understand that because that that was an asset, you know, to, to know what your opponent was was thinking about. So I think I learned pretty early on that you didn't give anything away. Don't give them something to work with that... Um, they can they can use against you, so that may be part of it. Well, it's funny you say that because I can still clearly recall uh, after I started working with Fox, and I was walking through the the commentators area, and I walked past your your brother Ian, and for the first time he looked me in the eye and he said, "G'day, Howie, how are you going?" And the opposite. I walked 10 foot taller and now I love saying g'day to him because he has now made the effort to make me feel comfortable. So I can understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, now he is, he is an intimidating man, your brother Ian. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've known him all my life, yes. obviously. Um, he was my hero. He is my hero. Yeah, I mean, I is he? having an older brother, um, he was the one that I looked up to, the first person I, I looked up to probably before my parents, you know, was because huh. he was that step ahead of me being five years older, but he was already at school when I was born. So, um, you know, I got to see him playing cricket, playing football, playing baseball and thinking that's what I want to do. So he was he was my hero because uh, everything he did I wanted to, to do. Sadly, he didn't recognise I was alive until I was about nine years of age. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd follow him around like the yeah you know, the family dog. The trouble is, he'd treat me like the family dog and kick me in the guts and send me home, because you know, as a ten you know twelve year old, he didn't want a six no. or seven seven year old younger brother following him around. So it was pretty tough. But luckily for me, he ran out of mates when I was about nine years of age, and all of a sudden, I was you know invited to play in the in the test matches in the backyard. So yeah, he is intimidating, but. Um, you know, I, I can't count the number of people that have come to me and said, geez, your brother's difficult. And I said, what's difficult about him? You know, he tells you the truth. He tells you exactly what he's, what he's thinking. If he doesn't like something, he'll say so. Um, he's got to be the easiest person in the world to deal with because you know exactly where you stand. So what you're telling me is you'd prefer someone to tell you lies and mm. pretend that they like something that they didn't like. You're not going to get that with Ian. But, yeah, yeah, I've known him long enough to know that, yeah, there's a big softy inside there somewhere and, um, you know, I see it. Um, yeah. Those close to him and, you know, he, he's a very loyal individual and he attracts loyal individuals back. He's got some very, you know, a, a wide range of close friends from all through his, through his life and that, I think that says something about the man as well. 
I it's is not a conversation for you. I, I need to tell him at some stage. I remember when he got heavily involved in uh, the camps in Central Australia where refugees were being sent, and, yeah. and he went up there and he did a TV show. I'm not sure if it was a strange story, and geez, it touched me. And it was a side I hadn't seen of him, and I thought, wow, that that's remarkable. Anyway, that that yeah. is that is a story for another day. Before we get to you, it's interesting that we've hit straight on this at the start about the tough exterior and growing up under your father who was obviously fairly strict. I've been told in more recent times, Greg Chappell, you have become a hugger where you are spreading more love for want of a better term. And it's also been said to me that you're a man that is always looking to develop yourself and improve yourself, which is Mm -hmm. all anyone can ask. What's the transition been like from the toughest of tough Aussie cricketers in the 70s with, you know, Dennis Lilly and Rob Marsh and yourself and Ian and the shirts undone and the the tough, uncompromising stare to being a warming of Greg Chappell for a a bit of a term. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, look, I think, again, it's always been there, but probably, you know, we grew up in an era where that didn't happen, you know, and I don't remember ever having a hug from a mother, let alone from a father. So, you know, it was, it just wasn't the the done thing. I think the turning point for me was meeting my wife, Judy, and, um, you know, she uh, encouraged me to be more uh, outgoing and um, in that way. And particularly with our, our kids, I was conscious we, we've got two boys and a girl. Our daughter is in, in the middle of the two boys. And I've been very conscious from a very early age to, you know, make sure that there's a lot of hugging and kissing and I love you sort of stuff yep. going, going on. Because it wasn't a big part of our our early life, and um, yeah, though that obviously had some sort of impact on the way we were as well. So I've been very uh, very conscious of of that. But you know, I think after after my cricket career, probably maybe more around the the coaching sort of period of. Uh, of my life with the importance of, you know, the connections. And uh, so I think that that's been uh, the sort of growth that's that's gone on. And uh, as you said, you know, always trying to improve yourself and just be more relaxed. I think, you know, I wasn't a naturally outgoing individual as a kid. I wasn't naturally confident. I, you know, if there were I can remember going to the corner store near primary school, you know, at lunch break we could we were allowed to go over and buy whatever, you know, there wasn't a school tuck shop or anything like that, so the corner shop and, you know, I might be the third person in, in the line, but if four more people came into the shop, I was likely to be the eighth person served. You know, I, I wasn't someone who pushed myself forward. I wasn't naturally confident, um, even around my cricket, because, again, you've got to understand that, you know, my my first competitive cricket was in the backyard against my older brother, and um, you know, the, as our father insisted, they were always serious. So we were playing test matches; they were always Ashes test matches. <laughs> the bad news for me was that Ian was Australia and I had to be England. So that <laughs> that was a real real challenge. Um, so I learned to lose for five years until Ian left home and then I became Australia and Trevor became England and then I started to win. But um, that, yeah, I was always the youngest person in every sporting team that I played in, you know, until the latter, you know, until I got into senior cricket, obviously. But all through the junior days, you know, I, you know, I, I played my first 
competitive game of cricket at primary school, I was in year three. So most of the kids in the team were in year seven. So I, you know, I learnt to sort of be seen and not heard, just, you know, sit in the background and listen and learn. And so, you know, I started playing my, uh, represented South Australia as, as an 18-year-old. So again, you know, you've got blokes in the room who are anywhere from 25 to Les Favell, our captain, would have been probably 38 at that, that's so, 36. So, you know, I learned to sit in the corner, be quiet and learn, um, listen and, and learn. And, and, you know, I learned a lot just from sitting and observing and, and learning. And that was all good training too for, you know, eventual leadership and all of those sort of things, you know, seeing what was going on and learning from, from the environment. So, so, so the, 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 the leadership then, if you're, if you're the third man at the shop and then yeah. you're the eighth man to get served, how do you then pump yourself up to go and captain, well, your brother, Lily, Marsh, Thompson, these that we spoke about before, these quintessential tough, hard Australian men that didn't hand out compliments and all of a sudden you're having to tell them what to do and you're the eighth kid in line, as you've explained it. Yeah, look, I, by, the stage, by the time I got to that stage, obviously I'd sort of mm. grown a little bit more more confident and I don't think I've ever been overly assertive in, in, that, uh, in that sense. Um, you know, I'm more likely to be hanging back rather than pushing forward. But, you know, in that environment, by that stage, you know, I was very comfortable on the cricket field. There wasn't anything that was going to happen on the cricket field that I hadn't experienced before um, or couldn't deal with. You know, I could understand it and often you could see it coming. You know, things would develop over, you know, an over or a session or a day's play and you could sort of see where the game was heading and where it was likely to be in another session's time and how you could influence it and maybe change it, particularly if the the outcome wasn't looking very positive from your point of view. Um, plus, you know, I started with Dennis and Rod. You know, we, we started in the same series together. Um, so, and I roomed with these guys. You know, in those days we shared rooms. Um, so, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and look across and Rod Marsh's bare bum would be hanging out of the bed alongside <laughs> me and, mate, that's not a pretty sight to wake <laughs> no, up to. So, no. yeah, you, you knew them pretty well by the time you sort of, you, you were on the on the cricket field with them. Okay. Um, so, and, you know, I'd grown up around tough personalities, you know, not least of all Ian, but, our, you know, our father. And So just to put a cap on this discussion... You and Ian, when you see each other, do you hug? Is there a hug, hello, or is there a hug goodbye, or the two tough chapel men haven't quite got to that point yet? Um, I'm usually hugging uh, fresh air when it gets to that point because uh, <laughs> Ian hasn't quite evolved to, to okay. the hugging, hugging state. Even, even when our, boy, our two you know, adult boys, yeah, they'll always... Give give Ian a hug, and it's not a comfortable. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a comfortable position for him to be in to be on the receiving end of a hug. So I do him a favour and yeah, just leave him alone. <laughs> before before we get to you coming, I, I was reading with fascination about your grandfather, your maternal grandfather, Vic Richardson, yep. and those that follow cricket, you know, he's got gates named after him at the Adelaide Oval, and I, I read that he obviously captained Australia. He captain South. He played for South Australian football. He played baseball for Australia. He played golf for South Australia. He won the South Australian tennis title. He won the McGarry Medal for the best and fairest in the Sandfall. He was also the vice captain in Bodyline, which I want to talk to you about. 
and his photos, he looks incredibly like Ian, or Ian looks incredibly like him. What what type of man was he? Because he was obviously a sporting freak, Greg. Yeah, look, he uh, in an era when you could obviously play um, multiple sports, but you know the the genetic inheritance from you know from the athletic point of view was obviously very strong down through mum, um, and, and our father was a you know good sportsman in his own right. So. That genetic inheritance was was great, and, and having been involved in roles around talent development and so on, there's often the discussion around nurture and nature and all of that sort of stuff. In my case, I can tell you we were lucky in the in the nature, but the nurture was probably the most important part of it. Vic didn't have a big involvement in our sporting careers. He uh, obviously, look, you know, he'd played sport all his life. He probably didn't need any more. Um, mm. And I, I can I can sort of relate to that. You know, when I finished playing cricket, our youngest son Jonathan was about uh, five or um, yeah, about five or so, four and a half when I retired from cricket. But around nine years of age, he came to me and said, "I want you to teach me to play cricket." And I, God, I couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> so, Come on, um, Dad. <laughs> but, but I did it, and I quite enjoyed it, and I learned quite a lot from doing it. Thankfully, because um, you know I didn't want to be out there for too long, so I invented things that you know got him to a hundred as quickly as I could get him there, so that he was happy, and I was happy because we could go then. And uh, but what I found from trying to take shortcuts, actually, I learned a lot about okay. how how best to to teach cricket and and for youngsters to learn cricket. But so I think Vic. Obviously decided, you know, he didn't want to be be part of it. He, also, he probably knew that dad was, he had yep. it under control, so you don't need two coaches. Um, but he was always interested. I, uh, we we all went to Prince Alfred College in, in Adelaide. Um, it's just in, in the inner eastern suburbs, just on the eastern outskirts of, of Adelaide. And Dequetable Terrace is a main road that goes past the, the front of the school, uh, you know, and the front oval is at the front of the school on Dequetable Terrace. And I'd be batting at, uh, at school and you know, I'd just look up and I'd happen to see down the, the road, Vic had a big old Dodge, black Dodge or whatever it was. Huh. And I, I noticed the car and thought, gee, that looks like Vic's car. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd try and when I'd hit, finished playing a shot, I'd look up quickly and you'd see him duck out from behind a tree. And, <laughs> you know, and again, I, I probably didn't understand it until I became a parent and our yeah. boys started playing sport. I didn't feel comfortable going and sitting where all the other parents were sitting because I would become the focus of attention. Wow. And and that would take the attention away from the kids. So Vic obviously had, you know, probably a similar experience. If he'd turned up at the school, yeah. it would have attracted a crowd. So, you know, he was a pretty private person anyway, so he probably preferred just to watch it on his own. And so he'd be, you know, he'd, have, he'd park in the car and he'd hide behind a tree and, you know, when the bowler started running up and your focus was elsewhere, he'd sort of duck out and see how you wow. went. And if you had a good day, you know, the phone would ring at home and we never, the boys, none of us, even Dad didn't answer the phone. Mum was always the answer of the phone. And, you know, you occasionally if, if you had a good day, Mum would answer the phone and she'd say, your grandfather's on the phone. Hi, Pop. Uh, well played. Clunk. That was the end of the, com- <laughs> <laughs> the conversation. So, so, so on, on that, on that, so I think I can probably predict the answer. But as I said, he, he played, he was the vice captain in the famous Bodyline series. 
And I'm sure now you would love to sit with him and ask him a million questions about it. Did you ever have that opportunity to talk about that with him? Because it's uh, well, it's a tremendous part of uh, Australian English history, isn't it, Greg? Yeah. Oh, no, it's a, it's a huge part of it. And uh, sadly, not much. I do remember I just turned 21. In fact, probably the last function our grandfather went to was my 21st uh, in Adelaide in 1969, So, and he died a few months later. Um, but I do remember we had a family sort of gathering at our place. Um, I'd have been around 15, 14, 15 maybe. So Ian was already playing state cricket by that stage. And I remember, yeah, Vic, he didn't handle crowds well, even in a family environment, you know, a bit of chit-chat. You know, he got sick of that pretty soon. He wasn't a, sm- he wasn't a man for small talk, it doesn't sound not like. A, not, a, not a lot of small talk. So uh, I noticed that, you know, once we'd finished eating, Vic disappeared. And when I looked around, Ian was gone as well. So I thought, hang on, I might be missing something. So <laughs> I, I went inside and I found him in the lounge room. Vic was in, in Dad's lounge chair, which wouldn't have pleased the old man if he'd found it, but I think that's why Vic did it, probably just to annoy Martin. But um, so he's sitting in, in Dad's lounge chair and and Ian's on the floor sitting at his feet, literally just plying him with questions, practising for his after cricket career as a, as a journalist. He was just, what about this bloke? What about this test match? What about this series? You know, and it was fascinating. That was the only time, and you'll appreciate this, I didn't get a question in. Ian had the floor and he wasn't letting it go. And and I I mean, he he knew more about it than I did anyway, so he he was asking any any of the questions that I would have asked. And it was just fascinating to to listen to him talking about the Bodyline series, talking about Bradman, talking about, you know, in that conversation in the the lounge room on on that occasion, um, you know, he only talked positively. He wouldn't talk negatively about anyone. Uh, I remember him making a comment that, uh, you know, he was taught early on, if you haven't got something good to say about someone, don't say anything. Um, but, you know, he obviously had a lot of people that he had positive things to, to talk about because he talked about a lot of those sort of the people that he played with and against in, in that era, which was a pretty good oh. era of cricket, yeah. Well, well, you mentioned Sir Donald Bradman. When did you, obviously with the family connections, and I want to ask you that there's a there's a story that he had an a change in your cricket that I want to ask you whether it's true or not. When did you first meet Bradman and from your experience, what type of man was he? Because again, he he's written as a bit of an aloof style character. Yeah, I was obviously aware of him from a very early age because of who he was and uh, you know, the family sort of connection because Vic had played with and against him in, in um both domestic and international cricket. Um, I probably didn't meet him. I don't recall meeting him before I played cricket for South Australia. I was selected as a as an eighteen year old, sort of left school at the end of the one year, and then in the October of the next year, I was selected uh, to play for South Australia. And, and Sir Donald used to come into the dressing room every morning. Uh, he was a selector, chairman of selectors, obviously. Les Favell was a selector and we had another fellow called Phil Ridings uh, was uh, a selector. Those so as, three. Uh, j- just, uh, just sorry to interrupt, just yeah. as a young man there, was mm. the legend of Bradman the same as it is today? Would he walk into the room and everyone go, heavens above or not? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he was sort of 
aloof. Um, he didn't talk to, to many of us. You know, he would fill writings and he would come in and have a conversation with Les Favell before the start of play, have a cup of tea in the dressing room. They, he might, Bradman might talk to Neil Hawke, who was an Australian mm-hmm. player of the time, um, Barry Jarman, yeah, he might sort of say hello or even have a quick chat with one of the senior players, but he wasn't talking to any of us, uh, you know, nondescripts. Um, he'd, you know, <laughs> breeze in and he'd breathe in, breeze in and breathe out, breeze out. Um, so, and we weren't sort of rushing up up to him. We didn't feel, you know, that we were um, encouraged to uh, to rush up to him and have a have a conversation. I'd had a little bit more of a background of him as a man because of my grandfather's um, uh, relationship with him, which wasn't a particularly close relationship. Um, but you know, that that didn't bother me greatly. It wasn't something that I. Uh, was my problem. It was uh, that was for them to to sort mm-hmm. out, as far as I was concerned. But um, yeah, you know, he, he. But uh, you'd see him every day, and it was sort of um, nice to sort of. Th- and you know, he was a pretty. He wasn't an imposing figure as a man. He was a you know, diminutive's probably a bit unfair, but he wasn't a big man. And uh, you know, he was this little fellow who'd come into the dressing room every day. I mean, one of the great stories was. Um, Tony Gregg, and I mean, Greg, he could put his foot in his mouth better than most people, but um, the rest of the world, 1972 or whatever it was, uh, South Africa were meant to come to Australia and uh, they they got banned and the rest of the world squad was put together and Tony Gregg was in that, that squad and they landed in, in Adelaide in the old Adelaide airport, which was pretty, pretty ordinary at the best of times, and they arrived about 9 o'clock at night. And there were a couple of people from, uh, you know, South Australia Cricket Association there to sort of meet them. And Greggy told the story, you know, there was a couple of people there that sort of helped them get their bags off the, you know, off the carousel and so on. He said there was this little fella in a cardigan. And, uh, you know, we sort of jumped in, he jumped in the car and Greggy jumped in the front seat against this little bloke, you know, alongside this little bloke in a cardigan and driving along and... um, Greg, you said to him, uh, so did you play at all? <laughs> and uh, Sir Donald said, yeah, I played a bit. <laughs> and Bradman, Bradman didn't let on. Greg, he found out later on that he was sitting next to the, the great man and he just, <laughs> just smacked him in the face. Did, did he advise you, urban rumour legend number one I need to address with you, did he advise you to change your grip? He did. Um, in person? In person. I was... Take me there, Greg, if you can indulge me. Yeah, it was in my second season for South Australia, so I'd had a little bit of success. But, I, you know, I'd grown up being the smallest and the youngest kid in every cricket team I played for. And, and our, our school cricket at primary school, we played on cement wickets. So, you know, most of the bowlers had to launch the thing in the air to get it to the other end. So they were bouncing head high and, you know, even the spinners were bouncing up at you know, shoulder height. And so I think, A, I was, I don't know whether I was taught the, the grip with the back of my top hand facing the, the bowler, but it's, it's, it's quite a good leg side grip, okay. but it, it's yep. not a strong offside grip. And so whether that was just the way I you know, found it was easiest to deal with the high bouncing balls and so on, uh, I don't know. But anyway, I, I grew up being very much a leg side player and even into my first you know, 
few uh, you know season or so of Sheffield Shield cricket, you know ninety percent of the runs would be on the on the leg side. So so anyway, that was left alone um, for about four years until um, this particular day. I reckon we were, we must have been playing India, because, uh, you know, South Australia were playing a tour game oh, against tour India, game. Yep. because we were in the visitors' dressing room because the visitors' dressing room was quite a bit smaller than the home dressing room. So what they did when you had a touring team, they would put the touring team into the home dressing room because they'd have 15 or 18, you know, 15 players and a few administrators. We only had, you know, 12, so we, we got shunted to the visitors' dressing room. So I remember this particular morning, Sir Donald came in, as he always did, for his cup of tea with, with Les Favell and Phil Ridings, and, you know, he walked past everyone he didn't, you know, it wasn't even a matter of good morning, everyone. He'd just walk straight in, just go straight to Les and they'd have their conversation and he'd go out. Well, because this was a smaller dressing room and they'd added some lockers to this dressing room, it had made a pretty narrow entrance to the, the dressing room and I just happened to be near this entrance exit, which was just door width, you know, that was it. And in that corner, there, have, there must have been some bats for autographing or something, and I, I must have picked up one of these bats, and I was shadow batting with it when Sir Donald was leaving the room. And he literally had to walk right past me. And he was on the way out, and he wasn't going to be saying anything. And for some reason or other, and I don't know why, um, I was moved to say, good morning, Sir Donald. And he sort of stopped. I mean, he didn't have too many people, but he speak to him like that, uh, un, uninvited, I don't think, because he sort of, he looked a bit shocked. He stopped and he looked at me and he said, uh, good morning, Greg. At least he knew my name. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, st- he turned to go out and he stopped and he turned back and he said, by the way, he said, I'd change that grip if I were you. <laughs> and, I mean, that's, you know, that's a big statement. Yes. You know, I don't know why. I mean, it should have knocked me over. But I had to come back. I said to him, well, what would you recommend? And he said, well, he said the grip that I use worked pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) He's got the runs on the board, isn't he? Literally. (laughs) And I said, well, what was your grip? And he said, well, you can read about it in my book, you know, The Art of Cricket. And I had a copy at home, but I said to him, well, I haven't got a copy here and I've literally shoved the hand of the bat into his stomach and he's show me. Huh. And so he showed me, you know, the V of the two hands down the, the back of the bit, back of the bat, down the sort of uh, splice of the bat, very neutral grip. And he said, look, this will feel uncomfortable because you haven't used it before, he said, but it will open up the offside to you. You know, you're not very strong on the offside. This will... You won't lose anything on the leg side, but it'll just give you more strength on on the offside. So, you know, I'd suggest that you persevere with it, even if it doesn't feel right. And he turned to go and he stopped and he turned back and he said, by the way, he said, I've given this advice to one other person. He didn't take it and he's no longer in the team. And with that, he turned on his heels and he was out the door before I could say anything else. So we were were batting that day, so I... Uh, I, I grabbed Terry Jenner and, and Jeff Hammond. Um, I think Jeff was 12th man that day. Jeff was one of our quick bowlers. I said, do you mind just coming down to the nets quickly? I just want to try something. Because I was batting at five, I think, that day, so I had a bit of time up my sleeve. So we went down and I tried the script and it felt quite natural. It felt comfortable from ball one. 
Wow. And so I came upstairs, thank the boys, and came upstairs and I used that grip that day and every every other day for the rest of my career and I think it made a huge difference. Wow. Um, probably the best um, bit of coaching advice I, I got as an adult uh, came from the great man. Back to Greg in a moment. Next up on the show, an episode that I found illuminating, touching and at times heartbreakingly honest. It features dual Olympian Daniel Kowalski. Now, Dan has a swag of medals, many of them Olympic, but on his journey, he found himself swimming against his hero, Aussie swim icon Kieran Perkins, in one of the most storied races of all time, the 1,500-metre freestyle at the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. So what's it like... What's the best way to ask this, Dan? (laughs) What's it like trying to take down the bloke that the majority of the country wants to win? And it wasn't a reflection on you. Let's be honest. People wanted to see Kieran win a second in a row, and and Grant had the same thing in Sydney, obviously. Yeah, that was something that I really struggled with. Um, I I can't deny that I'm someone who wants people to to like me, and the thought that um, if I was to achieve a goal of mine, then people would not like me was really hard to to comprehend and I struggled with that a lot. Um, I felt like in my mind I was in this no-win situation that if I did win then people would hate me and then um, if I didn't then I'd have to live with that disappointment. Um, And I actually had, I was asked that question um, after the Olympic trials at the night of the 1500, what's it like to be the most hated man in the country? And for me, that you question... Are, uh, who asked you that question? Um, a journalist. Um, oh, and that's a terrible question. That was... At the time, I didn't understand why the context of the question and it, I understood it later, but as this 20-year-old kid who just achieved a dream that week, that was really difficult to comprehend... And I, obviously I couldn't, I didn't know how to answer that question, but um, that stuck with me for, for a while. That's Daniel Kowalski next up on the show. Now, before we get back to Greg Chappell, a quick podcast recommendation from me to you for all you cricket fans. The pod is called Road to the Ashes. It features all sorts of cricketers, many of whom I'm lucky enough to work with at Fox Cricket. It is a cracking cricket show. It is called Road to the Ashes. Check it out when you've got some time. Let's get back to Greg. Now, because you kindly admitted that you'd never listened to any of my podcasts, which I completely understand, why would you? You won't understand that uh, I have two young children that ask questions of the guests. We fill them in over breakfast in the morning and then uh, you get a question. So I'm going to take you back a little bit. So you get my son who is obsessed with cricket. He's Mm -hmm. nine. His name is Mac. Okay, Mac. But but he operates, for whatever reason, let's not go into it, as the big penguin. That's okay. what he likes to be addressed as. The big penguin, right, eh? Hopefully you can hear the big penguin. Are you ready, Greg? Ready. Hi, Mr Chapel. Big penguin here. First of all, I love looking at all the things on the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre catalogue, like all the new bats, fire pads, bowling machines. I got my first bat there, which was a kookaburra blaze. But what? And I've got my thigh pads from there. And I've got everything I've pretty much owned that's about cricket from the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre. But what I want to know is what was your first bat? Ah, very good question from the big penguin. Um, Just before you answer it, 
he knows you as the bloke in charge of the Greek Chapel Cricket Centre. I'm not sure he's familiar with the 87 test, but when that catalogue arrives in the mail, it's stop work, doesn't matter what time of the day or night. It's like, Dad, look at this box or look at this thigh pad. And I'm sure that is the same for many kids around the place. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And so to Mac, thank you very much. You've, uh, you're helping in me in my retirement. So I'm very, <laughs> very pleased with you there. Um, my first bat, I, I had a, being the second son, you know, I got hand-me-downs pretty regularly. I, I had a, a, a cut-down cricket bat. Dad had sort of cut a few inches off the toe into the, the bat. Um, so that was sort of the first thing I got in the backyard. But the first bat that was sort of my bat was a mm-hmm. Dunlop Crockett. Uh, which Crockett. I've never done, heard of that. Well, fellow um, Crockett used to make bats, I think, in Sydney, and he was he was bought out by Dunlop, so they became Dunlop Crockett. I I won the bat in a um, uh, advertiser, the advertiser newspaper used to have um, <laughs> during the the cricket season, um, you know, coaching clinics all around the state. Les Favell came down to Glenelg Oval this this day, and a whole bunch of us uh, turned up at Adelaide at Glenelg Oval for a, an advertiser coaching clinic. And part of that clinic was a was a quiz. And I don't I don't think I'd ever thought about it. I don't think anyone had ever sort of explained it to me in as many words. But the question was, um, what do you go forward or back to a full ball? Nice, you know, go forward. Yeah, I know. So do you go forward or back to a short ball? No, you go back. Anyway, whatever the, the third question, I can't remember the third question, but I got them all right. So Les handed me the Dunlop Crockett. So I don't know whether it was rigged so that I mean, I, maybe he was the only one in the, the audience that he knew of, but uh, <laughs> and maybe he didn't even know it was uh, I was there. I don't know. But I won myself a Dunlop Crockett, which was my prized possession for a few years. Um, I started my first-class cricket career using Slazenger bats until I went to England to play county cricket for Somerset. The first year I played with Slazenger bats and during the second year I was introduced to a fellow uh, from Grey Nichols um, who, uh, you know, presented me with uh, with a cricket bat and from that day onwards I uh, used Grey Nichols. When did you first get your name? When did you first get your name on your bat? Uh, that would have been, uh, you know, early, mid-70s mid probably was the, the, the GC master. Um, what else was there? What, what was the one? Now, this is, I love this stuff. What was the one that was like burnt in, like it was burnt in the wood with the, yeah. what was that one? Well, that was a GC master, but before that it was just the autograph bat on, yeah. the, old, on the old Crusader bat. You might remember the, the Crusader. The, the, like a um, scimitar, it wasn't a scimitar, it was more like a sword. Yeah. You know, with a handle and the, the sort of shoulders that came out wider than the <laughs> the top of the, the blade. That was just a, a blue Crusader sticker on the back, red and sort of blue Crusader sticker with my backward sloping autograph um, on the front of it. But then Swanee Richards, I don't think Swanee ever asked me, you know, I just think he just produced the GC master this uh this year, what would um, your what would your first bat contract have been worth? Five hundred dollars. Five hundred bucks. So my first ever bat, thirty nine ninety nine, was the Grey Nichols Century, which had yep. the Greek Chapel autograph on it. Mm-hmm. So what what other ones came out under the 
did you ever? Did we? What did you prefer? The scoop? Did you ever have a crack with oh, the yeah. butterfly scoop? Uh, or was that a gimmick? That was a bit of a gimmick. Uh, the scoop <laughs> was the best. Um, John Newbery, uh, the, the, the Grey Nichols fellow that I referred to, the, yep. who presented me with my first Grey Nichols bat, was a bloke called Len Newbery, who ran Grey Nichols in in England. His son John was a bat maker, and John was the one that invented the the scoop. And Ian and I were the first ones to um, to use the the scoop. We were we were both given. Um, Scoops in England, I think it must have been 75. What do you um, think when you first saw it? Were you like oh, fantastic or I'm not sure about this? No, when I saw it, it looked strange, but it felt great. It picked up wow. good. And, I mean, the, the the thinking behind it was a little bit like the peripheral weighted golf clubs yes. was to yep. was spread the centre of the bat because the problem with our bats was that the centre of the bat was about cricket ball size. And if you missed the centre of the bat, it wasn't going anywhere. It it wouldn't get out of the circle, let alone out of the out of the ground. You know, a centre hit probably went as well as the mm. the modern bat, but an off centre hit was very clunky. And the idea with the scoop was to take some of the the weight out of the back of the bat and try and spread it across the face of the bat and and take the the edges from that width to that width. Now they're about that width. They are, though. <laughs> but, you know, so it, it did, you know, the, the sort of off-centre hits, not so much up and down, but the sideway, if you missed it just slightly off-centre, um, you know, thick outside edge or a thick inside edge would go better than a, than previously. Um, so it did it did make a make a difference, I think. So they're, they're the bats. Now, the other thing that uh, is strong in my memory which is why it's a real thrill for me to chat with you, Greg, because like so many kids my age, you, you, we were watching you on the telly, but we were using your bats and we were wearing your hat. Mm-hmm. Now, how many of those Greg Chapel floppy hats have been sold, you reckon? Uh, well over a million. Um, wow. we, we went past the million mark some years ago. I, Did you? Numbers have, have dropped off a little bit, but we were so at the peak we were selling probably 50,000, 60,000 of them. Um, you know, a year, which was, um, and it was all done on a handshake. You know, we, I went, um, we went to Pakistan in, in the early um, 80s and, um, you know, up to that point, you either wore your baggy green cap or you wore a floppy bloody um, toweling hat. That oh, the Maxi Walker. The Maxi, the Maxi Walker, Walker special. Got in your eyes. I mean, the thing, <laughs> you know, it, it was a nuisance because the thing would flap around. <laughs> the Terry and, Towling. <laughs> and I'd seen Majid Khan bat in this stiff-brimmed ah. hat when, when he was in Australia in the, in the 70s. And when I went to Pakistan, th- these were, you know, th- they were more of a bucket size hat. The, the brim was only sort of that, that wide. Got you. Um, but at least it was, it was a, a stiff brim. So it gave you some sun protection and it wasn't sort of going to annoy you. I suppose it was the old floppy hat was a little, was good to keep the flies away because it would sort of brush them away. But I just found that annoying. Um, so when I went to Pakistan, I loaded up on these bucket hats. When I when we finished the tour, I had one of those, you know, firm cricket cases that we referred to as coffins. Yeah. And I just tossed all my cricket gear out, gave that away and filled them up with, these broad-brimmed hats, you see. So I thought that'll that'll get me through the rest of my career. Anyway, we were in Sydney that early next season, the next summer, and we went to the Albion Hat and Cap Company who who made the the baggy green cap. 
went to their factory and uh, I met the, the guys there and I just said to the um, managing director, I said, would you blokes be able to make us a broad-brimmed hat? They said, yeah, we, we could do that. And I said, well, you know, I bought this thing back from, from Pakistan but I want something with a broader mm. brim. Do you reckon you can do that? And they said, yeah, no problem at all. So they went away and got a few made up in Hong Kong. I think the original hats were, were made in Hong Kong. And it's a double canvas and so quite stiff. So it holds its shape really well. And so they they had a few made up and we had a look at it. And I think we had two goes at it to, you know, that's not quite wide enough. And, then, and so that sort of, we agreed that this was the Greg Chapel hat and away they went. And um, we never had a contract. It was all uh, on a handshake. Um, and then I think a few years later, about a year or so later, the the cancer council, I don't know whether Albion went to the cancer council or the cancer council came to them and said, look, if you make the, the brim another two centimetres wider, we can give you cancer council approval uh, because at the moment it's not wide enough to cover the, you know, to protect the whole face. So it was, you know, it was an innovation in its uh, in its day. It's still out there. Um, Albion hat and cap have been sold two or three times subsequently, um, and in the in the end, the, the the I think the current owner decided that they they'd run their own hat against it for a few years. Um, their their own Albion hat, and I think they reckoned it, they could make more money out of their hat than my hat so they all of a sudden it just dropped off the radar and so Greg Chapel Cricket Centre now have the hat made and uh, it's still still out there but not quite as uh, prolific as it once was. Well I can tell you because I always work weekends but due to COVID and the test summer starting later last year and no commitments I played my first four games of cricket for 10 years and I got myself a Greg Chapel Hat, so they are still very, being very sold. Good. So I hope that's good, still going into boy. your pocket. I good hope boy. it's still going into your pocket. Good boy, Howie. Mm. I, I just want to go back a little bit, back to the backyard. You talked about being uh, England and then progressing to becoming Australia when Trevor came on the scene. Someone who shall not be named said, I need to ask you about first your backyard and the setup because I'm fascinated where the runs were because we all grew up with those backyards with a lemon tree or the, the glass house. Describe yeah. the backyard to me. And then they said there was an incident they thought with Trevor that involved, I don't know if they didn't know if it was an axe or something along those lines in a very feisty game of cricket. Is this making sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Tell me about your backyard first then because we all grew up with it, Greg, where there was the certain things where you could hit it. What was the chapel backyard? Where were the runs? Well, the, the backyard was a reasonable size. Um, it was probably, it must have been about 24 yards wide because we had a very short run-up, you know. So <laughs> we, we'd, we'd bug it up the backyard. So Dad decided that he had to build a practice wicket and just around the corner from our place was... Um, was a cricket ground and, and a very good friend of Dad's was the, uh, was helping the Glenelg Cricket Club by making the wickets. He was an ex-farmer, Lynn Fuller. Lynn had had practice wickets in his own backyard and we used to go there on a Sunday and have some, you know, some practice and some lessons with um, uh, with Lynn for a few years. But Lynn was making these wickets at the, the cricket ground around the corner so the old man loaded up the ute or the, the, the trailer and... Uh, 
brought some black soil at home to home and built us a, a practice wicket, which was about a pitch and a half wide. We sort of had enough room to... In, in the backyard? In the backyard. So oh, we had enough that. room to to shift the, the stumps just slightly to, if, oh. you know, we we're wearing out an area. So it was probably about 12 feet wide, maybe about 10 yards long, but it had a ridge on the, on, on the end of it, which was... Um, which Ian used to great advantage in our matches because he was bigger and stronger and more able to hit that ridge. What, were you using a cricket ball? Absolutely. The old man, nothing else but a cricket ball. No tennis had, balls, right. We had, we had to play with a hard ball from the, the time we could stand up. Uh, didn't give us any pads and gloves to use. Um, so, <laughs> Come on, Dad. So he wanted, to, you know, he wanted us to find out what a hard ball felt like, and I did find out what it felt like. But his theory was if you use the bat properly, you didn't need pads and gloves. So learn to use the bat and then and you'll be fine. Well, that was okay and, you know, it took me a little while to learn to use it properly because I did get hit a few times. Uh, but anyway, so um, so we had the house on the offside. This is probably another reason why my leg side dominance. Yeah, um, of course. Uh, and on the leg side we had fruit trees. We had um, lemon trees, we had limes, we had apricots. We had two uh, at either end. We had uh, two almond trees, and there was just a little bit of a gap behind square leg between the end of the fruit trees and this almond tree. <laughs> and the old man used to—he would get really annoyed if we knocked the fruit around. So we had to hit the ball on the ground on the leg side to go under the trees. You weren't. <laughs> and the trees—if you hit the ball, hit the trees on the full, you're out. Outski. And at sort of. Extra cover, we had a tank stand by the back door and the, and the tank stand sort of protected the back windows a little bit. <laughs> Not completely because we did manage to get a few of them. Thank, thankfully, from sort of point to, to extra cover was the laundry wall, so there were no windows on that exterior, so that at least, you know, you could smash them through there with a bit of um, so you immunity. So you could blaze away through point okay. Yeah, point was the um, was the back of the garage. There was a carport at the back of the the garage. So as long as the, we we used to have to get the car shifted out of there because <laughs> n- no one like mum and dad didn't like us hitting the car. So we always made sure that the <laughs> carport was clear. Uh, the neighbours were over a third slip. They, they, the neighbours had built some um, some flats on the back of their place, and uh, just not far from us was a migrant hostel. So these flats were sort of the first step out of the migrant hostel for a lot of Germans and, and Dutch migrants. And I can remember getting a top edge over <laughs> over third slip one day through the window into the back flat, you see. And this bloke has come, the German fellow, has come storming out of the flat and he's got red stuff all over his face. <laughs> and I thought we've, you know, we've you know, hit him in the head or something. It landed in his breakfast and it... It was the tomato sauce from the top of his breakfast that splashed up. He had it all over the front of him. And he wasn't happy because, I mean, he had no idea what this no. game was and what this ball was that had just interrupted rudely his breakfast. So, but And then neighbours on the other side. So the old man finished up. We were lucky with the neighbours on the other side because um, they didn't like us breaking their windows, but they understood that we would, we were obviously doing something of value because Mr. Mason never, never let dad pay for the windows. He said, no, I'll get it on my insurance. The boys are okay. Don't worry about it. But dad finished up building extensions on both sides of our fence, you know, with, you know, with um, chicken wire 
to stop the balls getting out of the enclosure. So it looked like Starlog bloody 17, you know, with all these wire fences. And he'd, he'd been to the dump and he'd found all these old wire gates. So he, he put those up to protect his fruit trees. And we had another lemon tree at short mid-off, silly mid-off really. So that got a, got a wire gate put in front of it. So these were all fielders. And so you had to, you know, wow. miss, miss the gap. But I didn't realise until many years later I was um, talking to Michael Brealy. We were playing in England at the time, a series in England. And I'd made some runs at, at Lords. And he said to me, where does this shot off your hip come from? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're the only person I've ever seen play this shot where you, you pick it up off your hip and it actually gains pace. You know, it goes quickly behind square leg. And I said, well, that was where the gap was between the, the apricot <laughs> trees and the, and the almonds. So that's obviously, and I, was, I wasn't even aware of it until, you know, I was in my 20s at the time that Mike, you know, mentioned it. And when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, that was because I had to, that was where I, one of my fours on the leg side was through there. So, um, Greg, that is the best, because I ask every cricketer that comes on the show about their backyard, that is the best backyard cricket story I've heard. And, it, you know, whether it's Boomer with the short and run up yeah. because of the fence or you off the hip. So tell me, I, I mentioned to you something about an axe. I'm a bit hazy on the details, but you it, it lit a, a light in your eye. I don't have any trouble with the details. I remember it vividly. We were playing a test match, England versus Australia. Trevor was England and they weren't doing well. Were you scoring and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. When you got out, you because you batted for the whole team and when each bloke got out, you went into the laundry, wrote his score in the scorebook and you came back as the next bloke. <laughs> so it was a very, it was quite a warm summer's day in Adelaide. It was probably about 40 degrees and... I was the head groundsman at the time and so it was my responsibility to look after this, you know, 10, 10 yards by 12 foot wide, um, you know, Athelston soil that was our cricket pitch. And Trevor's got out and he's gone into the laundry to fill in the scorebook and he, while he was away I thought, well, here's an opportunity. I grabbed the watering can and I just gave the pitch a bit of a sprinkle. Mid-test match. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing was starting to, you know, fall apart and I thought I was doing him a favour. You know, I just gave it a bit of a sprinkle and I, I may have, it, a little bit more might have come out of the watering can just on a length. I don't recall that bit. But anyway, Trevor's come back and he started to face up and then he's just cracked it. He's just, oh, you, you cheat. I'm, I'm not putting up with this. So he's storming inside. And I thought, well, that's it, he's gone. <laughs> and unfortunately, Dad had left a little tomahawk. On, <laughs> I think he used the tomahawk for pruning his trees. I don't know what he did with it, but he'd left it on the tank stand just by the back door and obviously Trevor decided that's a better way to sort this out. <laughs> so he's grabbed the tomahawk and he's come after me. <laughs> Thankfully, he still had the pads on because we, we'd, we'd graduated to pads by that stage. <laughs> so... I think it was only one pad. He's got the, the pad on his left leg and I'm taken off round the fruit trees because, you know, I mean, I'm, he was always a bit quicker than me but he still had this pad on so he's dragging a leg and I'm ducking between and under these fruit trees with him coming after me like a red Indian. And I thought, I'm going to die in this backyard if I can't get out of here. So I sort of had to work my way down to the end of the fruit trees to get a dash down out the side gate. Right. Sadly, there'd never been a gate there up until a few weeks 
prior to this, Dad had built a gate to keep the dog in because the dog, <laughs> the dog used to go roaming the neighbourhood at night, and a few of the people in the neighbourhood complained that Champ was, you know, came sniffing around their female dogs mm. and whatever at night time. So, so Dad had built this about a four foot six high gate on on the side to keep the dog in. So I've taken off. I'm running down the side, and I realise. I can't say exactly what I thought, but yes. goodness me, there's a gate there. Um, goodness me. <laughs> luckily, it had some crossbars on the, the back of it to sort of, you know, strengthen it. So I was able to plant the foot in the cross and just vault <laughs> over the gate. And I got off down the down the street and stayed away for a couple of hours until he sort of calmed down a little bit. But it could have been a very premature end of my career. <laughs> That's the end of Greg Chapel Part A. Lots more to explore in Part B. See you there. Listener.